to have a strong effect on someone or something. That's the definition of the word impact. To have a strong effect on someone or something. And I want you to know this morning that that is God's will for your life. He wants you to have a strong impact on others. He wants you to exert godly, Christ-like influence on other people's lives. That's a call on all of our lives. And I want to talk to you about what a life of impact looks like as we continue our study through the book of Galatians, line by line, verse by verse. We're going to read Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 8. We're going to cover this morning down through verse 20. Galatians chapter 4, we'll start in verse 8 to establish the context and focus on verses 12 through 20. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, which I will remind you is truth with no mixture of error. Grateful today for the living and active and sharp two-edged sword of the Word of God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, the Bible says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Now look in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the, what's that word? Truth. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, now watch this, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you, uh, Lord, again in Jesus' name. And we are so grateful, Lord, for another opportunity to gather, Lord, to fellowship around your presence, Lord, to fellowship under the authority of your word. We ask, Lord, that as we study your word, you would move in our hearts by your spirit, that our eyes might be open, that we might see the truths of scripture, and we might have the wherewithal, the inclination to respond to those truths. Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to further grasp 
what it means to live a life of impact. And I pray, Lord, that we would leave today determined, committed to live a life of impact for your glory and for your glory alone. Help us in these moments to to lift up the name of Jesus, to exalt him, to, to rest and rejoice in his finished work. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, Paul is writing this letter that we call Galatians to churches scattered throughout the first century Roman province of Galatia. And here's what Paul's addressing in this letter. After Paul had gone through the province of Galatia preaching the gospel, churches had been started. After Paul started these churches and encouraged these churches and instructed these churches, he left and went back to his home base of Antioch in Syria. After he left, some false teachers began to infiltrate the churches in Galatia. These false teachers were called Judaizers. And their intention was to come to these churches and say, if you really want to be right with God, you need to keep the Jewish law. You need to observe Jewish customs. You need to, in effect, become Jewish if you really want to have favor with God. We've heard you've placed your faith in Christ. That's great. That's wonderful. But if you really want God to show you his faith, if you really want God to accept you, you also need to keep these different parts of the law, including one of the major things was circumcision. If you really want to be accepted by God, you need to be circumcised in addition to your faith in Christ. So they were adding on to the gospel. And Paul is infuriated about this. He's writing the book of Galatians to defend the gospel and to explain the gospel. But in this text, uh, we really get to see Paul's heart for the people in Galatia. We see here that he's worried. Look what it says there in verse 11. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I preached the gospel and, and, and you received the gospel, but now it seems like you're adding on to the gospel. You're going uh, that direction. You're, you're on that trajectory. And I'm afraid that my labor may have been in vain. You're proving uh, by, your, uh, by your example that you are walking away from the gospel. He's, he's worried about this. Uh, look what he says in verse 20. He says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So he's worried, he's perplexed, because, uh, well, look what he says in verse 14. Here's why he's so perplexed. He says, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, when I came and preached to you, you believed that I was a messenger sent by God, an angel. That word angel could be translated messenger, angelos in the Greek language. You came as a messenger of God, and by your receiving me and my message about Jesus, it was as if you were receiving Jesus himself. And so I came and I preached and you responded and it was glorious. And now you're, you're buying into this distortion of the gospel. And it's a head scratcher. He says, I'm perplexed. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And so we see see here that he's writing this letter because he cares. His tone is very harsh. 
throughout the first part of this letter. But in this section, his tone begins to change a bit. And you begin to see his concern and his compassion and his care for the people in the churches in Galatia. So as his tone changes, I want us to think about what that reveals about Paul's heart. And I want us to see how Paul desired to make an impact in other people's lives. And I want us to learn from that. So we can learn how we can make an impact in other people's lives. Here's how you make that kind of impact. Number one, I've got five truths today. Number one, care about their spiritual condition. Care about their spiritual condition. If you really care about someone else, if you really care about them, you're going to care for them beyond externals, beyond physical needs even. You're going to care for their spiritual condition. Because where a person is in their relationship with God can affect their, uh, or will affect their eternity and will affect their, their life in the here and now. So we should be concerned about their spiritual condition. As you think about other people's spiritual conditions, uh, you need to understand the goal. Understand the goal. Look what he says there in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also become as you are. You did me no wrong. So he's calling them uh, to a different belief system, a, a different way of living. And look what he says in verse 19. My little children, again, a, a, a softened statement. He, he's showing his concern for them. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Notice here, he's saying, I am concerned about you. I'm pouring into your life until the moment when Christ is fully formed in you. So what's the goal for these, these folks in Galatia? The goal is Christ-likeness. And that's the goal that we should have for ourselves and others. Christ-likeness. That should be our concern for others. That others receive Christ as Lord and Savior, and then they begin to be changed by the Lord so that they become more like Jesus. That should be our goal. That's God's goal. Over in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the Bible says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, listen, to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So that verse says, if God saves you, he saves you with a purpose, and his purpose is to conform you into the image of Jesus. That's what he plans to do in your life, to make you more like Jesus Christ. So if that's God's goal, that should be our goal for others, right? Our goal for ourselves, our goal for... We ought to want to help people to grow to become more like Jesus. Do all that we can, fulfill our role to help them become more Christ-like. Now listen, we know that a passionate track athlete, if, if they want to win the prize and they're running the mile, four laps around the track, they don't stop after two laps, do they? If they're going to win the medal, they've got to make all four laps and beat everybody else. Well, oftentimes, as Christians, we quit on other people, listen, before they reach the goal. But before they get to that place of, of Christ-likeness, we, we don't help them to grow into that. In my church, growing up, uh, it was a great church. I heard the gospel, I was saved, and I'm so grateful for that. But I don't recall, and this might have just been my immaturity, my, my 
you know, just my immaturity as a person and as a, as a believer. But I don't remember hearing much about discipleship. All I knew about discipleship is it was an hour you had on Sunday nights before you went to the Sunday evening service. It was discipleship training. That's what it was called. And I thought, that's discipleship. You come back to the church building, you sit in rows of chairs in the same sanctuary that you have church in, and, and someone gets behind a lectern and they teach you for 50 minutes, and you get to go get some water and, and uh, run to the restroom before you start church at night. That was my experience with discipleship. You come and listen to another lecture. And I really had no, I really had no way of, of understanding that God intended discipleship to work through relationships. People pouring into other people, helping them to grow towards the goal of Christ's likeness. I remember one time very clearly, there was a, a, a troubled uh, young man in our church. He got into some... Um, uh, some alcohol abuse and some other things, and his life was very, very uh, troubled. He got into a, a lot of difficult situations. And I remember his parents, his grandparents, fervently praying over him. His name was Jimmy. And I remember one Sunday morning after the service, Jimmy came walking down the aisle. And people were crying and rejoicing. And Jimmy talked to the pastor. And, and, and Jimmy made a profession of faith. And he was presented to the church. Everyone is weeping and rejoicing. It's wonderful. Look at Jimmy. After a few weeks, Jimmy quit showing up to church. And no one saw Jimmy anymore. And I've often wondered, years, whatever happened to Jimmy? Could it be that, that when churches see someone like Jimmy, they say... He made a profession of faith. We're done here. And we quit the race halfway through it. See, when someone makes a profession of faith, the church is not done with that person. They're just getting started. Because the church has the job to help them to grow towards Christ's likeness. That's the goal, right? Not just conversion, Christ-likeness. That's the finish line. That's what we're shooting for. And so we dare not throw in the towel halfway through the race. And Paul says, I'm perplexed. It's a head-scratcher what's going on, but I'm not giving up. I'm going to keep on caring for you, showing my concern for you, Helping you, pointing you to truth until Christ is formed in you. That's the goal. So that's the, the, the goal of, uh, of spiritual condition we're looking for. But not only do we need to understand the goal, we need to understand the process. Look what he says in verse 19. My little children for whom I am in anguish, uh, again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed. Notice that word formed in you. That word formed is the word morpho'o. Hear the word morph in that? Uh, transformation, a change. The Greek word morpho means to cause something to have a certain form or nature. It means to form or to fashion. This word was used in the first century, listen to this, of artists shaping their material into a certain image. So you can imagine an artist uh, taking materials, whether it be paint or clay or whatever, and, and fashioning that material into the image they wanted it to be. And so he's saying here that, that I'm in the anguish of childbirth. I feel the pain of, of, of helping you to get to your goal. But I understand that you get to Christ's likeness as you are formed into Christ's likeness. In other words, he understands it's a, it's a process. Now here's what you need to understand about how you become more like Jesus, how others become more like Jesus. 
The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in believers to make them more like Jesus. That's what's happening in your life right now. Holy Spirit's at work in you. Other people that you ought to care about, Holy Spirit is at work in their life if they're a Christian, forming them into Christ's likeness. That, that happens in every believer's life. This word here, morpho, is a passive voice verb, which means uh, the, the passive was used of, a, of an object being acted on by an outside force. So he's saying here that you believers in Galatia, you are being acted on by an outside force. You are being acted on by God himself. He's the one forming you into Christ's likeness. But listen to me. God is a God of of purpose and goal. He's also a God of means. He uses certain means to help people to become more like Jesus as he molds and forms their life. What are the means that God uses to to shape us, to form us into Christ's likeness? God uses, listen to this, spiritual habits, reading your Bible, praying, being involved in local church ministry, habits. And spiritual, listen, helpers to accomplish his goal. Here's what that means. If someone is going to experience the accelerated work of the Spirit, forming them into Christ's likeness, that person needs to employ the means of, of, of right spiritual habits. They need to be in the Word, need to be in prayer, need to be under the, the ministry of a local church. But they also need not just habits, they need helpers. Someone to come along beside them and teach them and instruct them and help them and point them in the right direction. There's a pastor in Woodstock, Georgia named Johnny Hunt. He was... He was radically saved from a life of, um, of brawling and fighting and drunkenness. Uh, he was uh, a pool hustler. That's what he was known for. But through a series of God's marvelous works in his life, Johnny Hunt got saved. And he said a, an older layman in the church immediately took him under his wing. He said the first time that they met, he handed him a tithing envelope. And he's like, what is this? And he explained to them, here's how you bring your, your, your finances under the authority of Christ. You give 10% to the church, and, 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 and you save, and you, and you take care of your other money as a good steward. But he taught him how to deal with his money as a Christian because he never even heard of tithing. He didn't know what a tithing envelope was. But this gentleman was not just a, a cheerleader. He was a helper. And he came along and said, here's how you deal with money as a Christian. And, and he said, I'm so grateful for that, that he showed me that early on. And then this older lay gentleman took him on visits. They began to knock on doors. And Johnny Hunt would watch this gentleman share the gospel with folks, just share the good news. And uh, he watched this, observed after a couple of visits. After a few visits, they went to a person's door, knocked on the door, a person opened the door, and... The older gentleman said, uh, we want to share with you how you can come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, how you can be saved. Here, Johnny's going to tell you. He's a brand new believer. But he'd seen it modeled and he kind of stumbled through it and his, his mentor was there watching him and he helped him to actually share the gospel. Why? He was being a spiritual helper. He was helping him 
to learn the truths and apply the truths to his life so he could serve Jesus and grow into Christ's likeness. And so if we're going to care about other people's spiritual conditions, we need to understand the goal. The goal is Christ's likeness. Listen to me. None of us have arrived there yet to perfect Christ's likeness. Amen? We'll get there when we get to heaven. So we're all works in process. So no matter where somebody else is in their spiritual journey, you can help them take the next step. The goal in the process, the Spirit working through habits and helpers. So care about their spiritual condition. Number two, if you want to help other people, if you want to impact other people, be worthy of imitation. Be worthy of imitation. Look what he says there in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. Now in context, he's probably referring to his freedom in Christ. He's saying these false teachers are trying to lead you astray, add to the gospel, take you back into bondage of trying to save yourself. That's no way to live. Be like I am. I was a Jew. I lived according to Jewish customs and laws. I know what that life is all about. But now I've met Christ. I've been saved by grace through faith. And I experience the freedom of knowing the work is finished, it's paid in full, I'm redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and it's a wonderful way to live. So saying, be like I am, be free like I am. Experience the freedom of living in Christ. Paul enjoyed and exhibited the Christ-empowered freedom that he was calling others to. I want you to be free like I am. Be like I am. He was an example of that which he was calling them to. And this is not the first time we see Paul calling others to follow his example. 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's pretty, that's pretty uh, confident, isn't it? To tell somebody to imitate you. Would you be comfortable saying that? If you want to know how to live the Christian life, just watch me. Quite a statement, isn't it? If you want to serve Jesus faithfully, watch me. That's what Paul says here. How could Paul say that? Well, Paul could say that because of what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me, listen, as I am of Christ. I'm, here's the process. I'm imitating Jesus, and insofar as I'm imitating Jesus, you can imitate me. The Christ-likeness in me. Philippians 3, verse 17, Paul says, Join in imitating me. Philippians 4, verse 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So Paul was confident in his relationship with Christ, and he was confident to say, If you want to know what it means to live for Jesus, follow my example. And here's the application for all of us in this room. We should live in such a way that other people can see the difference that Jesus makes. Amen? We should live in such a way that others can see the difference that Jesus makes. Don't just, don't just tell folks, show folks. If Jesus gives you joy, you ought to be joyful. Amen? If Jesus fulfills your greatest needs, you ought to look fulfilled. If Jesus can change marriages, your marriage should be in process of being changed. Amen? Show people the difference that Jesus Christ makes. If Jesus can make you a quicker forgiver, forgive folks. 
If Jesus works so that you don't hold grudges, then let those grudges go. Show people the difference Jesus makes. If Jesus can make you a better friend, be a better friend. If Jesus can make you a better employee or employer, do it. Show people the difference Jesus makes. So they have a pattern to follow. I've always enjoyed coaching my kids through the years in in different sports, and I've learned, particularly when they're younger, uh, it's not enough just to tell them something. Do this, don't do this, do the drill this way or do it this way. As a coach, I have to get out there and show them so they can actually see it in practice, and, and then they can follow that example. It's the same way spiritually. As we're pouring into others, investing in others, we need to not just tell folks how to do what they should do, but we should show them with our lives, right? Be worthy of imitation. You say, wait, I'm not real comfortable telling someone, imitate me. I just don't think I'm there yet. Listen to me. Ask God to get you there. Ask God to grow you into that. So you can be a living example of what you're calling others to be. There's a third truth here. How do we impact others? Embrace suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now that doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? Embrace suffering for the sake of the gospel. If you want to impact others, it's probably going to be difficult. Look what it says in verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Though my condition was a trial to you, did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now what's Paul talking about here? Paul's talking about some sort of, of, of malady, some sort of ailment. We don't know exactly what he's talking about. There's been lots of speculation. Some believe that he's speaking of something with his eyes because he mentions a little bit later in this passage, he says, you would, uh, you would uh, get, give your eyes to me if you could. He said, if, if you could give your eyes to me, you would do that. So he, maybe he's talking about some physical uh, ailment with his eyes. Others believe it's eyes too because at the end of this book, he says, I'm signing this letter with, with large letters. So maybe he had to write in large letters so he could see what he was writing. That's speculation. We don't know exactly, exactly what he was dealing with here. Maybe eyes, but some sort of physical ailment. And he says, because of my ailment, look what he says there in verse 12, verse 13, because of a bodily ailment, I preached the gospel to you at first. There's something about this ailment that caused him maybe to delay or to slow down or to change his itinerary so that he was able to preach the gospel to the folks he's writing to. So suffering, watch this, suffering hardship placed Paul right where God wanted Paul. It it gave Paul a hearing with others. Suffering can give you unique opportunities. Tom Schreiner writes, Paul regularly teaches that his sufferings were the means God used for the dissemination of the gospel. God's regular pattern is to display his strength in and through the weakness of his servants. Therefore, Paul's sickness and suffering are not astonishing or surprising to him, but precisely what he expects. Paul's saying, this didn't didn't, uh, throw me off course. This wasn't a shocker to me. Acts 9.16, the Lord told Ananias, go to Paul. I want him to know how much he must suffer for my sake. Paul knew suffering was coming, but he knew God would use his suffering to give him unique opportunities to gain a hearing with others. That's what he says. 
My suffering is the reason I preach the gospel to you. So the next time you find yourself going through something difficult, maybe pause for a moment and look around. And say, is this this difficulty, this trial placing me in a situation where I can speak into other people's lives? Could God be using this to get me right where he wants me? Suffering. And here's the other thing about suffering. Suffering allows God's power to be clearly seen. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, the Bible says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul writes, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, God gave him a vision of heaven, and he's saying, if God didn't humble me, I would have been conceited because God allowed me to see it. He said, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Again, we don't know exactly what the thorn was. It may be the same thing he's talking about here in Galatians chapter 4. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, watch this, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm, watch this, I'm content with weaknesses, content with insults, content with hardships, content with persecutions, content with calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now it takes real spiritual maturity to get to this place. To say, I'm content with calamity in my life. I'm content with hardship in my life. I'm content with suffering in my life. If that hardship and calamity and suffering and those trials and tribulations show my weakness so that God's strength can be manifest through my life. I'm content, he says, with all of these sufferings. So do not think of suffering, and this is important, do not think of suffering as a barrier to serving God. Some of you think, I've got too much going on in my life right now. Life is too hard for me to really serve Jesus. So maybe when all these things settle down, maybe when I get better or things get better or my life gets in order, then I'll serve Jesus. No, that's not the way to think about it. Do not think of suffering as a barrier to serving God. Think of it as the pathway for His strength to flow in and through your life. Now again, not easy. It's one thing to preach it, another thing to live it, right? It takes real spiritual maturity. But when you are weak, your life becomes a platform for God's power to be on display. I read a story about John Stott. He was a pastor and author in the 20th century, middle to late 1900s. And... He spoke of going to an evangelistic meeting for college students in Sydney, Australia in 1958. He lived in London, England. He went to Sydney, Australia for this meeting of young people and preaching the gospel. And it was, it was uh, several nights long. And the first couple of nights went okay. On the last night of this crusade with college students, he lost his voice. He could barely speak above a whisper. Not only that, he got word from England 
that his father had just passed away. So here's this preacher, grieving with no voice, and there's one night left to preach. Stott says, I gathered in the back room with some college students. They gathered around me, laid hands on me, and they read this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. For when I am weak, I am strong. And that night, he said he was about a half inch away from the microphone. And he could barely get the words out. He was, he was barely audible. He, no voice inflection. He could not raise his voice or lower his voice for dramatic effect. He was just trying to get the words out into the microphone. After he preached that message, immediately said, people began to stream to the front. The most numbers of any night, people coming forward, giving their lives to Jesus. It definitely wasn't the preacher. It wasn't his presentation. It, it wasn't his strong voice or tones or inflections. It was simply the power of God through his life as the gospel went forth, touching people's hearts. He said, he went back to Australia about 10 times after that meeting. He said, listen to this, every time I went back to Australia, someone would come to me and say, hey, remember that last night of that crusade in Sydney, Australia? He said, they would say, that was the night I was saved. Every time he went to Australia. What do we learn from that? That when we are weak, we are prime candidates for God to use us in remarkable ways to let His power shine forth and touch others. Don't think of suffering as a delay in serving Christ and impacting others. Think of suffering as an avenue to serve Christ and impact others. When you are walking through suffering, when you are walking through hardship, but you're walking with Jesus through it all, it gives you a unique voice into other people's lives. People will hear someone that's suffering in a way they might not hear you otherwise. So if you're going to impact other people's lives, you need to learn to embrace suffering and think God could be using this so I can touch others with my weak life. There's a fourth thing here. If you want to impact others, tell people the truth. Look what he says in verse 16. Have I, then become, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Are you going to turn on me because you've been led astray by these false teachers? Are you going to turn on me because I'm telling you the truth? Paul says later in Galatians, we'll get to it, that I want to keep preaching the cross even if I'm persecuted for it. And he says, others don't preach the cross because they want favor with men. You see, a message that appeals to humanity's desire to save themselves will always be a popular message. For these folks to come in and say, if you'll get circumcised and do this and do that and do this, then you'll be right with God. That's an appealing message because people think, well, I'll start doing those things. Paul's saying, I'm going to tell you the truth. You can't save yourself. It's only Jesus that saves. And, and am I going to become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? Notice here Paul's commitment to truth. 
You see, if you do not share truth with people, you're not really helping them. Let me say it again. I don't think you heard that. If you don't share truth with people, you're not really helping them. John 8, 31 says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? Free. As you learn God's word, you're learning truth, John 8. His word is truth. And when you learn the truth, the truth will set you free. So if you're not sharing truth with others, they're not going to be set free, are they? You're not helping them. And secondly, if you do not share the truth with people, you're not really loving them. Ephesians 4.15 speaks of Christians called to speak the truth in love. Christians are called to speak the truth in love. So one of the ways we love others as they are on their spiritual journey is to tell them the truth. And if we don't tell them the truth, we don't, we don't really love them. No matter what we say. So if I go to lunch with you and we're about to go our separate directions after lunch and paid the bill and going back to our workplace, if I've got mustard on my face, I expect you to tell me. <laughs> May be a bit embarrassing, but I'll get a napkin and wipe it off because I don't really want to walk around the rest of the day with mustard on my face. Tell me the truth. In that moment, I would need your help. I would need your perspective. I would need your insight, right? For us not to tell people the truth about the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's commandments and principles and precepts for our life, to, to not tell people the truth is not, is not some form of tolerance that helps people. It is... It is unloving. We are called to love others by telling them the truth. And so if you're trying to help somebody else, if you're trying to impact others, wherever they are in their journey, tell them the truth with love so they can take the next step. Number five, and we'll be through. This is, this is critical. How do you impact others? Care about their spiritual condition. Be worthy of invitation. Embrace suffering for the sake of the gospel. Tell people the truth. But five, have patience. Look what he says in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also became as you are. He said, I came to where you were, lived among you. You did me no wrong. Then look what he says in verse 19. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish, of childbirth, watch this, until Christ is formed in you. I want you to focus in on that little word, until. I'm feeling the anguish, like a, like a, a mother giving birth to their child. I'm feeling that because I want to see you grow into Christ's likeness. And I'm going to, watch this, I'm going to keep feeling that until you become like Jesus, until you reach the goal. You know what Paul's saying by that word until? He's saying, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm going to care about you for the long haul. He was perplexed. He was disappointed. He was even angry. But he wasn't giving up. Now here's, here's something very important to understand about other people's spiritual journeys. Rarely is a person's spiritual journey linear. They get saved, they 
learn this, and they grow, they learn this, and they grow, and they just keep moving forward, 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 forward until heaven. Doesn't always look like that, does it? Sometimes the spiritual journey can be, I got saved, took a step forward, took another step forward, took another step forward, took two steps back, took one step forward, and then a step back, and then maybe some more steps forward, and whoa, man, I was waylaid by this situation in life, and, and I'm kind of stuck right now, and I'm stagnant, and I'm not moving. That's what, that's what people's spiritual journeys look like in reality. You know how I know that? Because that's what my spiritual journey looks like. And that's what your spiritual journey looks like. Every person experiences setbacks. Every person. Those setbacks can be as a result of our own sin and poor decisions. They can be brought on by circumstances. Our spiritual setbacks can even be brought on by other people mistreating us. Or broken relationships or whatever the case may be. But everybody, every Christian experiences setbacks. It's not linear, is it? It's just not. In fact, discipleship, growth into Christ-likeness can, can be rather messy. It can look rather messy. Some can experience a setback because of false teaching. That's what he says there in verse 17. He says... They make much of you, but, but for no good purpose. In other words, they're flattering you. They make you feel important, but they're teaching you false things. It's no good purpose. They're leading you astray. So because these false teachers, these folks in Galatia had taken a step back. And Paul's frustrated by it. But every person experiences setbacks. And we should know that people require patience because of our own experience. You know how I know that I need to be patient with others? I know that because people have had to be patient with me. Can I get an amen on that one? Amen. Oh, I got quiet on that one. <laughs> you know how I know that I need to be patient with others? Because others have had to be patient with me. My Christian life has not always been linear. Rarely is. There's setbacks. One step forward, two steps back. Five steps forward, three steps back. Setbacks. It's not easy living for Jesus. That's why, that's why heaven's so wonderful, amen? amen? But we should know that people require experience. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says to young Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus, preach the word. Okay, Ruxanton Logon, I love that verse. Preach the word. That's your primary responsibility, Timothy. Preach the word to the church in Ephesus. And he goes on to say, Reprove, rebuke, and exhort, watch this, with complete patience. If you're going to preach the word, Timothy, you're going to have, to have patience pastor a congregation of people that have setbacks. And Timothy, you have setbacks. So you better learn to preach the word with patience.
My wife is, is so gentle sometimes at reminding me of some things, but so effective. There have been times as a parent when I've been frustrated with some decision my kids made or some way my kids were acting, and I'll just be frustrated. You know, And Claire will just ask a question like this. She'll say, did you ever do that when you were young? In other words, Wade, did you ever have some moments growing up where you needed some patience? Others need to show you patience? answer is yes. Implications clear, right? How about showing some patience to those under your care now? It's a good word. A good word. Not excusing behavior, still helping and correcting and all of that, but, but with patience. And if you're going to get into the business of helping other folks, impacting other folks, you've got to roll up your sleeves. And you've got to be willing to be patient with folks. Because I guarantee you folks have had to be patient with you. Right? And so he, we see here, he said, I, I'm, I'm in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is fully formed in you. Here's what I want you to walk away with this morning. Here's the, the point of this sermon. Your life will have greater kingdom impact if you choose to impact others for Christ. Your life will have greater kingdom impact if you choose to impact others for Christ. If your heart is beating this morning, and I'm assuming it is because you're all looking at me right now. Well, most of you. Most of you are looking at me. but That's another sermon. Anyway, your heart's beating right now, right? That means God has a purpose and plan for your life. And part of that purpose and plan, His will, His agenda for you, is to love others, to impact others, to help others. The things that have been entrusted to you, 2 Timothy 2, to entrust those to faithful men, that they may entrust to others also. That's a calling on your life and my life to impact others.